0: WDBM East Lansing 89FM The Impact You're listening to Impact Exposure
1: Exposure
2: Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University This is
3: Impact Exposure. Exposure Thank you for tuning in to Impact Exposure. I'm Abby Newton. After a cold week in Michigan, the weather is finally turning, we think. But today we've got a full show for you, starting with Detroit. As many know, Detroit filed for bankruptcy not too long ago. Now, I spoke with Michigan State Professor Eric Scorsoni. He is an advisor to Kevin Orr, the emergency manager of Detroit. He gives us a full breakdown of what this means for the city and for the state of Michigan. Now in recent weeks, Nelson Mandela, the former president of South Africa, has been battling illness. As his health has worsened, we take a look back on his life and his actions that united a country. We also talk with Mateen Khalid, former Spartan and national champion, about a kid's basketball camp he brought to Lansing. Lastly, we hear a bit of slam poetry for the Spartan soul. Detroit used to be a metropolis of a city, with almost 2 million people living in it in 1950. Today, it has a population of 700,000. The unemployment rate sits at over 18%, which is more than double what it was in 2000. There are 78,000 abandoned buildings, and the average response time for police officers is 58 minutes. Emergency manager Kevin Orr was hired in March to lead Detroit out of fiscal trouble. However, two weeks ago, Detroit became the largest city in the U.S. to file bankruptcy. This was Governor Rick Snyder's announcement. Today I authorized the emergency manager for the city of Detroit to seek federal bankruptcy protection. This was a difficult and
2: painful decision, but I believe there are no other viable options. Why did I do this? What's the rationale and what's the impact for both the city of Detroit and the state of Michigan? Well, let me start with the fact that this is a situation that's been 60 years in the making in terms of the decline of Detroit. From a financial point of view, let me be blunt. Detroit's broke. It's been spending 38 cents on the dollar towards legacy costs. That number was projected to grow to 65 cents on the dollar. That's not a sustainable situation. But more important than the financial situation are the poor services that are being delivered to the citizens of Detroit. They simply deserve better. If you look at it in terms of public safety, Detroit has been on the top 10 list of the most violent cities. In 24 of the last 27 years, response times for police calls are at 58 minutes versus a national average of 11 minutes. The clearance rate on cases is 8.7%. Then you can go on to fire, EMS, streetlights, the list goes on. This is not viable nor appropriate for the citizens of the city. What will federal bankruptcy do for the city? It's an opportunity for a fresh start. It's an opportunity to say, let's make realistic promises to creditors by revising those debts. And more importantly, let's put in place a plan to invest in the city to get improved services to citizens. That's critically important and something they deserve. What does it mean to the state of Michigan? The state of Michigan is the comeback state. But for Michigan to be a great state again, it can only happen if Detroit's on the path to being a great city. This is a critical step in making that happen. Let's move forward and get those done
3: together. MSU economist Eric Scorsoni is one of Orr's advisors. He came to Impact to talk about the situation. What does this mean? You know, Detroit has filed bankruptcy. What does this mean for the city?
4: Well, I mean, for, it's not going to mean a whole lot right now. Mm-hmm. Essentially, there'll be a lot of legal filings, and, and basically the city's trying to get out of this debt burden it has. And so it's very different, though, than a corporate bankruptcy like General Motors a few years ago. Basically, the judge, you know, isn't going to sell City Hall or anything like that. The city's really in charge of what it wants to do. The judge is kind of the referee or umpire. He's going to help decide what's fair. So basically, each group is going to be, you know, saying what they think they deserve. So that will include employees, retirees, vendors of the city, uh, and bondholders. Those would be the four major creditor groups. And so the court battles really over who gets what— uh, of of the assets that are available to pay off this debt.
3: And what assets are being talked about the most do you think?
4: Well the most attention is to the Institute of Art obviously for those who are you know from Michigan who have been there, you know that's considered one of the best art institutes in the country. It's worth over three billion dollars. Um, it's not clear who actually owns the art though because there's all kinds of legal, issues around that so that's gonna be part of the court battle probably is who actually owns the art because there is a public trust that is involved as well not just the city government Mm -hmm. and so that'll be part of the issue Uh, the other big thing is the Detroit water system which is um, services over a hundred cities in Michigan so Detroit services most of the suburbs with water And that will also be likely an an asset. And the the emergency manager's already said he wants to basically figure out a way to sell the city water system. Mm -hmm. There may be other things, I mean, smaller things, but those are the most obvious ones.
3: And when they hired the emergency city manager, it wasn't too long ago, you know, from filing bankruptcy. So did they hope, I mean, was filing bankruptcy expected in this plan at all?
4: Well, I think it was, and I think Mr. Orr, being a bankruptcy lawyer, it was mm-hmm. pretty obvious that that was certainly one potential scenario at that point, point. and I think it took a few weeks for him to really get his, his um, you know, decide what was really possible and what wasn't and work with the creditors to see if they were willing to voluntarily make concessions, and so, you know, obviously in the end they weren't, and in fact there were a number of lawsuits being filed, and so it became obvious that probably there weren't many other options at that point.
3: Do you think bankruptcy? It was a good option. I mean, if you can say whether it was good or bad.
4: Yeah, I mean, I really can't say good or bad. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, there's there's going to be a lot of winners and losers, so it's hard to say. But you know, from the city's perspective, it's probably um, there just isn't enough you know resources at this point to pay all the debt burden and to provide services like police, fire, ambulance you know, essential city services. So really, there's kind of a quagmire you have to go through at this point. Mm
3: -hmm. I was looking online at USA Today, and they just had different reports. For instance, it takes 58 minutes is the average response time for services. Um, There, 90% 90 of crimes go unsolved. You know, I mean, these statistics are just, you know, you just, it's terrible. How do you save a city that's in such a state as Detroit?
4: Well, what, what's essentially happened is the debt burden and other costs have essentially consumed so much of the budget that police and fire, you know, are not given adequate services or there's not enough staff available. So the response time for police is 58 minutes in that sense. So by addressing this debt burden, the idea is to free up those resources mm-hmm. that would have been going to those things and pay for current services to cities, to city residents. Now, you know, we'll see, I and mean, that's the plan. If it works, you know, I don't know for sure, but that that's the idea in going through bankruptcy. Just like General Motors went through bankruptcy because it couldn't be competitive with Honda or Toyota, obviously today it is competitive, and it is doing actually quite well, so.
3: And how do you prevent this? You know, for instance, when you file bankruptcy, it's kind of like putting, pushing the refresh button, although there's a lot of different hindrances that, you know, you get there. So what do we do next as we're rebuilding the city to prevent this from happening again?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think a lot of things have to happen. The city, city residents are going to have to really take charge of their government and make sure that the kind of things that have happened don't happen again. There has to be a real you know activism about how to make sure this these kind of things don't happen i think the state government also has a role in terms of supporting the city and making sure that it has adequate resources i think um you know and and, you know there's other changes that probably have to be made in city services i mean the city is so large geographically And the question is, do parts of the city have to be restructured on a land-use basis? Because there are only 700,000 residents, and there used to be over 2 million. So Mm -hmm. there's going to have to be land-use changes. You know, this bankruptcy is only really one part of the renaissance of Detroit, and there's going to be many other elements beyond bankruptcy.
3: So as an advisor, what's on your mind for the very next step then after filing bankruptcy?
4: Well, the first part of this process is is going to be uh, the creditors don't want the city to be in bankruptcy, quite frankly. So they're going to fight and there's going to be a battle over is the city insolvent? Um, couldn't the city raise taxes or sell assets to pay off these liabilities? So that's going to be the first phase of the trial and that may take a considerable amount of time. So that's basically where we're going to be here for the next you know number of months at least
3: mm-hmm. and who if the creditors for instance the court case says they, they say the bankruptcy is valid how much will the creditors lose
4: well it's hard to say each creditor group will likely be different mm-hmm. but um you know they so it's hard i don't really know if i can speculate right now sure. i mean they'll likely lose something but you know it's very hard to say right now because there's so many unresolved issues um so we'll have to see
3: And looking back at history, was there something that really started the whole almost demise of Detroit or was it a combination of events? Where does it really stem back to?
4: Well, it is a combination. I mean, certainly the economic decline of the city, you know, used to have uh, maybe a dozen auto factories. Mm -hmm. Today, it has one. People, you know, students should understand, I mean, Detroit was the Silicon Valley of its time. I mean, in the first part of the 20th century, it was really like Silicon Valley. I mean, Henry Ford and these entrepreneurs were, you know, incredibly powerful, and they changed, you know, just an industry in itself completely. And so, You know, what happened, though, is the city got a little complacent. You know, there wasn't really a diversification of the economy. And so as the auto industry began to decline, Detroit really didn't have any other options to go to. And so over many years, people left the city, jobs left the city, Um, you know, and so that tax base, you know, your property taxes, your income taxes, you couldn't collect as much anymore. And so then you combine that with the, you know, kind of that occurred over time. But then the 2009 recession, the global crisis, really hit Detroit hard, you know, as it did the auto companies themselves. And at that point, it became very difficult. Revenues dropped in a, like 30, 40 percent. I mean, it was really unprecedented. And so, you know, that that's really what kind of was the final causation, I would say.
3: Mm-hmm. uh you know, in Detroit, there's statistics. There's 78,000 abandoned buildings, 66,000 vacant lots. Well, I haven't been to Detroit ever. What's for people who haven't been to Detroit? What is it like there?
4: Well, you know, it's it's um, it's a tale of two cities, as Charles Dickens said. I mean, it's <laughs> it's the downtown and midtown areas they call it. Where Wayne State University is is actually really growing a lot. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of new residences going in there. I think a lot of you know students and a lot of 20-somethings are wanting to actually live in Detroit. So there's a lot of energy downtown certainly compared to say five or ten years ago even. Um, But that's only one part of Detroit. When you look at the neighborhoods there's a few neighborhoods that are stable but a lot of them are still declining. Uh, part some neighborhoods have lost the majority of their houses they're they're not even abandoned houses there's literally vacant land now and so east East side detroit is probably the hardest hit area Mm -hmm. and those areas are going to be challenging it's not clear if you can really rehabilitate those in the normal sense you probably have to look at other options so you know people should visit detroit uh it's it's a really interesting place there's a lot going on there and i think it's The perception is one thing. I think the reality is there actually is a lot of energy and positive things happening despite the bankruptcy. And I think actually, you know, the hope is the bankruptcy, you know, leads to something better long term.
3: So I was reading also that Kevin Orr at some point was hoping that he could, it was like a 15 month, you know, his eyes were on a 15 month timeline. Is that possible, you think, still?
4: Well, I mean, that's certainly the hope. Mm-hmm. I, it's very hard to say because mm-hmm. these court proceedings are just so on. It's such a rare municipal bankruptcy is very rare. And so, you know, we don't know for sure. Mm-hmm. We we certainly that certainly, you know, everyone would hope it goes as quickly as possible. But, you know, it's hard to say right now.
3: And how is the morale in Detroit with the residents? And, you know, once your city does declare bankruptcy, although it's not official with the filings, what has the response of the citizens been?
4: Well, I think some citizens, you know, are believe the city's sort of been bankrupt for a long time mm-hmm. because they don't have streetlights, they don't have adequate police and fire services. So from their perspective, it's been bankrupt for a long time, even if it wasn't legal. Um, I think others are concerned. They don't want the Art Institute sold. They don't want the impact on other, you know, important city assets, cultural assets probably others are excited i mean i think you see a lot of mixed feelings right now about it i think people are taking a wait and see attitude because you know from one day to the next nothing really changed Mm -hmm. quite frankly you know people really i think want to see city services better you know i think ultimately they want to see our services getting better are the street lights coming on are the police responding i mean it's the most basic municipal kinds of things the most of us expect and so i think if that gets better then people are going to say, okay, this makes sense, you know, but, you know, we'll see, there's going to be a lot of retirees that are very concerned. A lot of them are still city residents, you know, and they're very concerned because their pensions may be on the line, their retiree health care may be at risk. So I think it's a lot of mixed feelings right now about what this really means. Um, And obviously the public reputation, you know, of, of a bankrupt city, you know, coming on the heels of bankrupt auto companies. So, I mean, you know, but Americans love a comeback story, so you know I think that's the <laughs> that hope is true. Is that, you know that's where we'll head in the future.
3: The next miracle, or remember right. the Titans, right? Remember the Detroit, right? Ah, <laughs> right. uh, now also, what does this mean for the state of Michigan? What impact do you foresee it having on the state?
4: Well, it's possible that the there is an impact in the sense that it may cost more for other governments to borrow. Mm-hmm. Um, there may be an impact on the state in terms of our reputation. Um, possibly in a negative way. But, you know, I I guess I look at it more positively because I really believe one of the strengths of the United States is actually is bankruptcy. Other countries, bankruptcy is much harder. And, and the thing is, while it's not a positive, I mean, there's always – you know, but if you look at a place like Silicon Valley, failure is actually part of the culture. You know, people are expected to fail several times with companies and startups before succeeding. And so, you know, one could argue one of the strengths of this country is like a bankruptcy process that allows people to readjust and renew themselves. And so, I mean, I think you have to hope there may be some short-term negative impact, but if we can— Get Detroit back on its feet in a fair way to everyone involved, including the pensioners and the vendors and the, you know, all the other creditors. I think if that happens, then I think it's, it's really a positive for the state as a whole. And I mm-hmm. think that's and that's, you know, I, I can't say that's going to happen or not, but I think that's that's certainly one way to look at it.
3: And as an advisor for Kevin Orr and, you know, being very much involved in this situation, how do you look at this huge issue and take it piece by piece?
4: Yeah, it is very overwhelming. <laughs> and quite sure. frankly, it's it's day to day. I mean, mm-hmm. every day you kind of focus on what's the task we have to do, you know, what little piece of this puzzle do we have to put in place? Because if you look at the enormity of this, it's it's going to be hundreds of thousands of documents and millions of pages of filings and very tense court you know hearings um, with all kinds of uncertainty as to the outcome uh, obviously people's you know uh, lots of people involved you know real people with real issues so it's it's um it's kind of overwhelming at times but you know I think we're hoping to set the path forward you know because other cities have these same challenges mm-hmm. you know Flint, Saginaw even Lansing to some extent has some of these same, challenges of having high costs and having a revenue that's pretty stagnant and so we've documented some of that and and, you know not that we we certainly don't want other cities going into bankruptcy but we want to find what is that pathway where our cities especially in michigan can really start to do better because you know the future is very urban oriented and we need cities that are strong and vibrant and Mm -hmm. so detroit is is the leader obviously and so we need a detroit that is strong
3: well how are you doing Professor Scorsone? <laughs> are you holding up okay? <laughs> yeah,
4: it's been overwhelming with the number sure. of interviews um mm-hmm. and 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 the attention to the issue uh you know from really across the world but but you know like I said I you know I I came here to help, you know, really play a role in getting Detroit cuz I've been thinking about this for a long time mm-hmm. growing, having grown up here and so you know, I, I just try and hope we can make our, you know, in and Michigan State University, we can make our difference in some small way.
3: And mm-hmm. looking, say, 10 years down the road, what do you hope Detroit looks like?
4: I mean, I would hope to see a place, you know, I, I went to school in Chicago, so I mean, a, a place like Chicago, mm-hmm. I mean, a place that's vibrant, has, has a housing stock that is really attracting people back to the city, you know, a city that has those cultural institutions, a city where the relationship between the city and the suburbs is much better, or even the city and the state is better, you know, people have a positive. If you say Detroit, you know, people say, yeah, that's a, that's a place that came back. It's a success story like Baltimore, maybe. And I think if we can help do that in a small way, then I think, you know, that would be a fantastic outcome.
3: Well, is there anything else you'd like to add?
4: I would just add, I think for students, you know, Detroit's an exciting place, and mm-hmm. I, I really encourage people to visit, and, and quite frankly, after college, I mean, think about Detroit as a place to go, because, you know, it's, it's natural to think about Chicago and other cities like that, but I'll, I would argue that Detroit, there's a lot more opportunity. It's not so set. You know, mm-hmm. Chicago's a place where things are more set now, but Chicago, you know, Detroit is a place where there's opportunity if you're entrepreneurial. And I really think the city is going to come back in a lot of ways. It already is, and I think there's an energy there. So I, you know, I encourage students from Michigan State to really take a look at Detroit um, as a place that has some real opportunities in the future.
3: Well, thank you very much. We wish you the best of luck with this, and we'll certainly be watching and rooting you on from the sidelines.
4: <laughs> thank you. Thank you.
3: Although once a prisoner, today many call him a hero, Nelson Mandela, a man who served as president of South Africa from 1994 to 1999 and helped break the apartheid in the country. As he is ill for the past month, we take time today to remember the man. I spoke with history professor at Michigan State, Peter Aleggi, about the country led by a man named Nelson Mandela. So first off, who is this Nelson Mandela, and why is he so prominent in South Africa?
6: Well, Nelson Mandela is often equated with the history of South Africa, particularly the modern South Africa. And who is Nelson Mandela? Well, he's arguably one of the most important people of the 20th century, and he has survived uh, into the 21st. He just turned 95 a few days ago. And, you know, in many ways his life has um, been described as... You know the classic uh, hero's journey a kind of almost like a quest narrative he grew up was born in the deep rural areas of the trans sky in the eastern cape uh, the year that uh, uh, thousands of people died of the influenza uh, pandemic in uh, south africa like many other places around the world that was uh, july eighteenth, 1918 that mandela was born in a small rural hamlet uh, at embezo and um, you know he was of a minor royal stock. his father was a was a chief and he eventually ended up growing up uh, essentially at the feet of the king of the Tembu, the chief, paramount chief of the Tembu people, one of the main Xhosa uh, speaking groups of the Eastern Cape. Uh, but then he became uh, a, a lawyer, a practicing lawyer, uh, one of the very first Africans to have a law firm uh, in Johannesburg at a time of uh, deep racism on the part of the white minority. He became a revolutionary, of course. Uh, but he was also a husband. And we probably got to know him internationally because he was a prisoner, uh, a political prisoner for nearly 30 years. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, maybe the younger generations remember him mostly as a president of the Democratic South Africa.
3: Mm -hmm. And why was he a prisoner, for those who don't know?
6: Well, Nelson Mandela uh, spent most of his life fighting for freedom and justice in South Africa. Uh, He grew up in a country that was segregationist, a country ruled by uh, less than 20 percent of the people. That was the white minority of both uh, Dutch descent, but also uh, of English-speaking stock. And uh, this minority created a system of laws uh, that uh, essentially oppressed the racial, uh, excuse me, the, the black majority through these uh, racist uh, uh, laws. And uh, in 1948, these laws became even harsher under the system known as apartheid, which is an Afrikaans word. Uh, Afrikaans is a local language derived from Old Dutch uh, of the majority of whites in South Africa. It means apartness complete separation between people of different um, skin pigmentation uh, an extremely um, tyrannical and oppressive uh, system. And remember, this is after World War II that apartheid mm-hmm. comes into place. You know, a massive global war has been fought against totalitarianism uh, for freedom and democracy, and the world seems to be going in that direction. And South Africa takes the opposite tack and moves towards a more rigid uh, racist system. And Mandela found himself square in the middle of this incredible uh, moment. And uh, he was part of a huge group of black uh, political activists. Uh, many of them were part of the African National Congress, the leading liberation movement in South Africa, and he fought against injustice uh, for freedom and equality in South Africa. And he he paid uh, extremely dearly for his commitment.
3: And when he came out of jail, he was a still a prominent political figure. How does that happen where he was, you know, as some people call the world's most famous prisoner? How do you become the world's most famous prisoner? And why did people why were they so drawn to him?
6: That's a really good question. I think the reason people were drawn to him, both in South Africa and internationally, had to do with how much he did prior to going to prison. Mm-hmm. Right, he had already gained uh, incredible standing as a man of valor, a man of courage, a man of principle, uh, willing to stand up in the most difficult moments. Let me give you an example. Right, In 1948, apartheid uh, begins, extending the segregation that already existed and making it harsher and more complete. And Nelson Mandela basically became the leader of the black political uh, movements uh, that were taking place at the time. Uh, In 1952, um, the ANC, the African National Congress, uh, together with some uh, other allies like the Indian Congress in South Africa launched a defiance campaign, which was similar to what you saw with the civil rights movement in the United States, whereby activists started violating the segregationist laws um, in order to prove their injustice. And so, for example, in 1952, during the Defiance campaign, thousands of black South Africans sat in white-only uh, sections of buses or sat in the, uh, on the white-only benches in parks, um, you know, used whites-only toilets, and so on and so forth, essentially saying, we're not going to tolerate these racist laws. And Mandela led—he was the leader of the Defiance campaign. As a result, he was arrested numerous times, and he grew in stature. Uh, he was also a very prominent activist when uh, the blueprint of the liberation struggle called the Freedom Charter, a kind of almost a, a constitution in the making for a new uh, democratic South Africa, was adopted in 1955. And he was put on trial, and he was on trial for six years as a result of his role in uh coagulating this alliance of people um, arguing for one person, one vote in South Africa. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was acquitted in that trial, and soon thereafter, of course, uh, he decided that uh, a different kind of action was necessary. He had been a nonviolent activist up until about 1960, but uh, following a massacre of 69 civilians in uh, March of 1960 at a place called Sharpeville, just south of Johannesburg, Uh, innocent civilians shot, many of them in the back, by the police. They were protesting uh, particularly past laws, which in South Africa were laws that required all black people to carry a document that had to be produced uh, uh, if the authorities requested it. And if your pass, so to speak, was not in order, they could arrest you. And normal people, ordinary people who had been home and maybe left their house without their jacket uh, would be criminalized, would be thrown in prison alongside murderers and rapists and, and ordinary criminals. And so millions of people were suffering under this terrible system. And what did Mandela say when the police slaughtered these people? Uh, at Sharpeville in March of 1960. He said the following, and I quote, nonviolence was a tactic that should be abandoned when it no longer worked. Hmm. So while he adopted Gandhian tactics, he, d- for him, it wasn't the end all and be all, pacifism or, or nonviolence or civil disobedience. It was a tactic. And once the police started shooting men, women, and children who were unarmed, um, and many of them in the back, to him, it meant that you know, as, as he uh, uh, said, referring to uh, a Tswana language proverb in his autobiography, the attacks of the wild beast cannot be averted with only bare hands. Mm-hmm. You need to take up arms. And so Mandela became the first military commander of the Spear of the Nation, Um Konto Wesizwe. He became an armed guerrilla. He became uh, a terrorist, in fact, for the South African state. And mm-hmm. not many people know this, but the State Department of the United States government uh, still had Nelson Mandela on the terrorist list as late as 2008
3: past his presidency <laughs> well past his wow. well into his
6: retirement <laughs> oh he was still goodness. officially a terrorist uh, and i think that's that's important mm-hmm. because it says a lot about mandela standing both within south africa and internationally and you know when he was caught in august of 1962 he was arrested by the south african police everyone thought this is the end of mandela They're going to put him on trial. They're going to have a sham trial, and they're going to hang him because he is a dangerous prisoner, dangerous uh, political activist, and now he's a prisoner, and the South African government probably wants to get rid of him. And a huge campaign uh, worldwide was started to save his life. And it was not just Mandela. There were several others on trial as well. Well, the trial started in 1963. Lots of foreign reporters were there. Uh, microphones were not allowed. No taping devices of any kind, and yet a BBC reporter managed to sneak in a tape recorder, and we do have audio of one of the most amazing political speeches of the 20th, 20th century, and that was Mandela's famous statement from the dock. Uh, he didn't testify because, basically, the, prison, the um, uh, uh, Mandela and the other. Uh, people who were charged felt that this was going to be, you know, a foregone conclusion that they were going to be found guilty by by the apartheid state. And he gave this amazing speech, uh, you know, dozens and dozens of pages long, and what went on for about five hours. And he closes with, with this incredible statement. This uh, is, I think, the most important statement Mandela made before uh, he was released from prison. Here's what he said. And again, he's been standing for five hours, speaking in court with uh, um, lots and lots of people in the, in the gallery. All the attorneys are staring intently, uh, the judges as well. Here's what, he, what Mandela says. During my lifetime, I have dedicated myself to the struggle of the African people. I have fought against white domination, and I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an ideal which I hope to live for and to achieve. But, if needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die.
3: Wow. That's Nelson Mandela.
6: <laughs> That's Nelson Mandela. He says, I was sure I was going to be sentenced to death. But he was And he have. said, but he, he had this kind of, of bravery mm-hmm. um, that people admired and mm-hmm. still do to this day.
3: Right. And then in 1994, he was elected president. Now, how did South Africans respond to his elected president?
6: Well, coming out of 27 and a half years uh, in prison. (laughs) I guess he
3: was in a think tank, so they really thought he knew what he was doing.
6: (laughs) You know, he had had a long time to think about (laughs) uh, many of the issues that were facing South Africa by Mm -hmm. 1990, and there was huge celebrations everywhere, of course. I mean, by then, he was the most famous political prisoner in the world, Mm -hmm. so it was was a fantastic celebration. I remember we were in college. Uh, I was in college at the time, and with my college classmates, you know, we had a huge party to celebrate (laughs) Mandela. Was released, but we we like many South Africans didn't know what was coming. I mean, after all, he had just been released from prison. It wasn't as if democracy had suddenly dawned, mm-hmm. right? And Mandela had already had secret uh, talks with the um, South African uh, regime mm-hmm. while in prison, where they had hammered out some general points of agreement that laid the groundwork for what some have called the negotiated revolution. And so South Africans celebrated, uh, but they also looked up to Mandela and uh, that uh, core of, of mostly ANC leaders who were talking to the apartheid regime, uh, hoping that they would get um, a free and democratic South Africa very soon. Now it took about four years between Mandela's release and the first democratic elections, and it was a difficult time. I was in South Africa uh, in 1993 when, you know, Mandela was called on. On a, on a very difficult evening when, basically, the, the number two person in the ANC and what the, the person many people felt was going to be the successor of Mandela was assassinated in his driveway by two white supremacists. His name was Chris Hani, a really impressive uh, individual and, and wonderful human being. And he was gunned down as he picked up his Saturday newspaper on Easter Saturday. And we felt that the country was on the brink of a racial bloodbath. And nobody really knew what to do. I walked out of uh, the small house where I was staying with uh, people who I worked with, and there were military vehicles on the streets, hardly any uh, people walking on the street, which is very unusual in a South African city. Um, I was in Cape Town at the time. And that evening at about 8 p.m., Mandela came on the television. Not the president of South Africa, who at the time was uh, F.W. de Klerk, Mm. um, who Mandela would share the Nobel Peace Prize uh, with a few months later, but Mandela. Mandela came on the television, and, uh, you know, the 8 o'clock news, he came and he gave an incredibly powerful speech, which essentially said to people, cool it. Right. This is a terrible thing that has happened, but these two assassins are going to be dealt with by the justice system, um, and we have a greater uh, goal that we need to reach. And that goal, of course, was the elections, mm-hmm. and we can't have a civil war now <laughs> when when the prize is within reach. And you know, you really saw that evening how Mandela was already essentially the president. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would take several more months before a date would be set. Uh, But, uh, you know, we all knew who was really running the country by that time, and it was already Mandela.
3: And Mandela had another, you know, he had another way of getting things done, is he went to athletics. He looked into athletics to try to unite a country. How did he do that? And you studied it. I mean, you're an expert in this topic. So how exactly did Mandela take athletics to unite South Africa?
6: That's a really interesting question that uh, goes right to the heart, really, of, of what I love to do, which is look at the social and political history of sports in <laughs> South Africa, right? Um, I think it starts with his personal love of sports. Uh, he opens his autobiography, which if listeners out there haven't read it, Pick It Up, Long Walk to Freedom, the autobiography of Nelson Mandela, one of the greatest books ever written. Um, he describes his childhood in terms of his stick fighting as a, as a, as a youth, Uh, This is a very popular sport still today in the rural areas of South Africa because boys are expected to herd cattle. And that's how you spend a good chunk of your days, is, is herding your, uh, your father or your male relative's cattle. And you have these great fencing matches, essentially, with the other boys. And you prove your manhood. You entertain yourself. Uh, and sometimes it gets very competitive. And you might uh, have these stick-fighting competitions against neighboring villages. And, and you know, the better you are, uh, the greater your social standing and your visibility. So he had this, this deep passion for sport as a very young kid. When he moved to the city, particularly to Johannesburg, he became an amateur boxer. And so while he was pursuing his political activism and he was studying law and eventually also opened the a law firm with his friend Oliver Tambo, uh, he went in the evenings and sparred at this uh, very famous gym in what is today Soweto, the big black uh, um, town uh, outside of main uh, then white Johannesburg. And so he was never a professional prize fighter, but he was a very good heavyweight uh, amateur boxer. Um, in school, he also ran track. Uh, he did play soccer, although in his autobiography he says he was a terrible player, <laughs> so we'll take his word for it. Um, and also when he was in prison, you know, he was not allowed to play sports because he was in a particular section of Robin Island Prison the kind of South African Alcatraz for political prisoners, um, they did not allow, the authorities did not allow um, the important prisoners like Mandela and several of the, his comrades to play sports. Mm. Uh, he was eventually allowed in the late 70s to play tennis, uh, which he played in the courtyard outside his cell, But. Uh, The other prisoners on Robben Island, in in what was called the general population, they were eventually allowed um, to play soccer, and they even had prison Olympics, but Mandela was never allowed. So I think he had this um, deep love for sports, but also an understanding of how um, powerful it could be. Mm -hmm. And uh, eventually, when he became president, he saw that rugby, which was the sport of the white minority, was about to host the World Cup. Uh, and he thought this is a great opportunity to get recalcitrant whites, you know, these, these more conservative whites who are not fully on board with the transition from apartheid to democracy, to really embrace what is going on in South Africa, because South Africa, as Mandela liked to say, belongs to all who live in it, black and white. And so he understood the value of sport um, culturally, but he also remembered that during the 1960s and 70s and, and into the 80s, white South Africa had been excluded from the Olympics. They had been excluded from the Soccer World Cup. This was part of the sport boycott. And so he knew that there was political value uh, within uh, sport. And he also knew uh, that, you know, sports stars were revered in South African societies, like they are in ours. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, they're much more important and valuable than politicians, right? Um, And so he— Embrace the Springbok, the, the the gazelle, the South African gazelle, as the symbol of the white rugby team at the World Cup in 1995, which is closely associated with apartheid. Mm-hmm. And, a lot, and in the movie Invictus, Clint Eastwood's uh, movie Invictus, starring uh, uh, Matt Damon and, and Morgan Freeman as Mandela, there's a scene where uh, Mandela intervenes in a, in a meeting where um, they're getting rid of the Springbok mm-hmm. emblem because it's it's a horrible memory of the apartheid Past, and Mandela convinces those officials to keep it as a way to embrace more conservative whites and say, you know, we're with you. We, we, will, we will retain this symbol that's important to you because we want you to be part of a racially united and reconciled uh, South Africa. And this is a really important moment, of course, in the movie, but also in the real um, story, because uh, those springboks only had one player of color. Chester Williams. Everyone else was white. Mm -hmm. And so this was a really generous act on the part of Mandela. And... South Africa ended up winning the World Cup, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so like sports tend to do, you know, they convert these kinds of narratives into something almost magical. Mm -hmm. And so for a short while, South Africa really was united across racial lines, and Mandela had a lot to do with that.
3: Well, my last question is, what can we learn from Nelson Mandela? If you could say one thing that people can take away from this man that we, some call hero, some call president, others call Nelson Mandela, what is it?
6: I was just listening to an interview with his archivist, uh, Vern Harris, who is a good friend of mine, and Vern said that the word that comes up to, uh, in his mind when he was posed a very similar question was endurance. Endurance. And I like that because endurance gives me the sense of a person who was always thinking in the long term who is able to see beyond himself. We think of political leaders in a very cynical way these days. They're, they're only in it for their own personal power or, f- worse, for their enrichment. Uh, we have a—you know, we tend to view um, politicians and political leaders in a very negative way, and I think there's some basis for that. But I think a lot of what happens in politics today is very short-term uh, oriented and driven by short-term goals. Mandela, at various points in his life— could have made different choices. For example, when when he entered into secret talks with the apartheid government, the regime offered him uh, to be released if he forced, uh, if he um, d- told the ANC to end the armed struggle against apartheid. So he could have gotten a degree of freedom, shall we say, uh, for relinquishing uh, this struggle. He said, no, I'd rather remain in prison um, because at this point, you know, if we give up our arms, we'll still be living in a deeply racist and unequal society, Mm -hmm. right? His thinking was long-term. One person, one vote. South Africa belongs to all who live in it. And he endured after he had already endured two decades in prison, he had fought tuberculosis, Um, you know, here he's offered the carrot of walking out of prison, sort of a free man, and he turns it down. Or when uh, uh, F.W. de Klerk reveals to the world that he's going to release Mandela on February 2nd, 1990, he makes this incredible announcement, stunning everybody, pretty much, and Mandela says, oh, no, but I, I can't go out of, I can't leave prison yet says, we have to prepare properly for this. He has spent 27 and a half years (laughs) in prison, and he waits nine more days before he walks out of uh, prison, uh, at Victor Victor there Prison. So endurance, a man who always had, I think... Uh, the ultimate goal in mind and paid dearly for pursuit of that and of course he endured great pain personal pain he had no family life he spent very little time with his children and with his two wives Um, and I, i think that's why he has enjoyed being a grandfather in his retirement so much he spends uh, you know he has spent until he got very sick recently almost all his free time with his grandchildren and great-grandchildren and his other relatives because he you know was not able to give to his family so endurance is what comes to
3: mind well thank you very much that's peter talking about nelson endurance thank you thank you
0: Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my uncomfortable soul in the filled clutch of circumstance. I
3: that was Invictus, a poem enjoyed by Mandela. It was recited by Morgan Freeman, who played Mandela in the film Invictus. At sunrise, every
5: sunset too, babe, seems to be bringing me memories of you. Now honey, here and there, everywhere, things that we once knew. Oh
3: and they wrong. Just A former Michigan State Spartan basketball player returned to Lansing last week, and we have the story right here. Last week, former Spartan and former Piston Mateen Cleves returned to Lansing. Cleves led the Spartans to a national championship of 2000 and was a three-time All-American. He became the eighth Michigan State player to have his jersey retired. But this time, he didn't return to catch up with Tom Izzo but to play basketball with over 150 kids. Cleve started the One Goal, One Passion Kids Basketball Camp. It's a three-day camp that took place in Lansing last week, Benton Harbor this week, and Flint
7: next week. We basketball, that's the draw. We use that to get the kids here, and we want them to go away with not only learning how to play, become better basketball players, but nutrition, learn how to eat right, uh, setting life goals, learning how to set goals. So. Uh, the basketball is a draw, but it's called it One Goal, One Passion, because at the end of the day, we want you to formulate everything together and just win.
3: After a successful career at Michigan State, Cleve says he enjoys coming back to the town he once called home.
7: Uh, Lansing and East Lansing and Lansing is near and dear to my heart. When I left Flint and came to this area, they embraced me and I feel that I owe it to the younger kids that's coming up, um, that's what it's all about, but it's very near and dear to my heart, man. It means so much to me to be able to come back and interact, interact with the youth here in Lansing.
3: And the kids, they were simply ecstatic to play basketball with Mateen Cleves.
1: They love to be able to actually interact with them after having seen them like play basketball in the NBA and on TV, and so it's good for them, they're, they're excited.
3: That was Director of Camp Operations, Tonda Peterson Bryant. The kids range in age from 8 to 17. 10 year old Brody Barner loves basketball. I really like Mateen Cleves and I'd like to learn more about basketball. He says he learned a lot at One Goal, One Passion.
0: I've learned to have good defense, uh, keep the ball to my side, uh, do good triple threat, and use your pivot foot and jump
3: shot. Mateen Cleves also invited some of his fellow teammates to help coach the camp. Former Spartans like Andre Hudson, Travis Walton, Jason Richardson, and Draymond Green made an appearance at the camp. The Flintstones, Morris Peterson, Antonio Smith, and Charlie Bell also reunited to coach the kids. Hudson enjoyed watching the kids' faces light up when the big basketball stars entered the gym.
7: I've learned to call East Lansing my home now, so it's uh it's really nice to be out here and, and interact with some of these kids. Let them look; they love looking at a you know tall guys walking around. It really excites them, so it's good to put a smile on the kids' face.
3: Hudson says the camp teaches kids about having a strong work ethic in everything they do.
7: Well, it gives them a level of competition. You know, it teaches them about winning and losing and how to prepare yourself. And uh, what they're gonna learn is a lot of a lot of stuff that, you know, ask them to do a lot of hard work. They have to commit to certain things and that's going to teach, uh, help them in the long run as far as being able to commit to goals and commit to people to get things done.
3: Even some current Spartans joined Cleves at One Goal, One Passion. MSU sophomore forward Kobe Wollerman says he was going to similar camps not too long ago.
2: And so it's great to kind of help out and kind of give back and um, give kids the opportunity that I had when I was younger.
3: And the kids certainly appreciate it. They hope to one day wear the colors of green and white on the Michigan State Spartan Basketball Court. Go Green! and a little advice
7: from Cleves. Learn how to work, whether that's sports, whether that's school, whether that's you want to be an entertainer, you want to be a doctor, lawyer, whatever it is, learn how to work hard.
3: No way. For Impact, I'm Abby Newton. How I wish I could forget those happy to
5: years that have left the rosary of tears and
3: oh, oh. my dreams. In spite of all I do. Now I'm always up for a little inspiration, a little time to remember why we get up each morning and a moment to remember why many of us are proud to be Michigan State Spartans. Michigan State University alum William T. Langford IV, a.k.a. Will the Poet, recently returned to his alma mater to participate in a video shoot of his spoken word poem Schooled, which focuses on the experiences of difference, alienation, community, and fraternity that are part and parcel of undertaking an education at a large American university. Without further ado...
1: One minute, I was a poet at Detroit's Cass Tech High. The next, a reality check. I was a Spartan marching amongst the thousands. I bet you felt it on a Tuesday. Between organic chemistry and lunch at the Union, it hits you. You're from another time zone, and you're the only one like you. Tucked in the palm of the mitten, you can't see yourself fitting in here. Frigid winter whiteouts. Go green, go white shout outs. You've got your campus map out. The midnight scream during finals week. All this at the expense of your beauty sleep. Back home, maybe they roll tide or the Friday night lights shine on games of cricket. Maybe there's a sea breeze and a salt smell and not these salted sidewalks chalked and graffiti stenciled. You penciled in a chat with your mother. Which begat the feeling that you're out of your depth Which begat something nasty deep in your chest You can expel it You are different You are wanted here Vibing like vibing through our veins These chains are begging to be broken We're choking on the dust of indifference But spitting back our insistence That coexistence is not enough These chains, nagging links Are begging to be broken by the sun Rising on the day when I'm not taken to be a token Except for the fact that I do stand for change Choking on the glass of class and status at the back of my throat I do stand for change it's rolling along the banks of this red cedar I see it there in you Hunched over a book, sprinting headlong on the track, headstrong in a lecture, waist deep in conjecture that expects that we'll connect with respect for the reality that we are vastly different. Like magma and mercury rising to the occasion to celebrate what makes us, if only in a smile say, you are welcome here. Poet, preacher, teacher, reacher out, salsa dancer, freelancer, lay gourmet cooks deep in your books, it's all here. Under this sun, this sun yearns for it. Because a dream lives here, and our sparks, and our kindling, we have only to let it burn.
3: And that is all we have here tonight on Exposure. Have a lovely week. Keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next week. I'm Abby Newton, Impact 89 FM. Abby, everything seems to rain.
5: Mm, memories of you.